welcome to episode 1691 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Worried about Byron Buxton. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I don't want to have this conversation. Don't want to worry about Byron Buxton. He's only day-to-day right now, so no cause for concern, right? Right. I mean, who among us is not day-to-day? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hip strain. Day to day, he ran to first base and had an awkward stride, sort of like Luis Robert, but not devastating, at least up to this point. Just a hip strain, not a torn hip flexor. I'm sure he'll be fine and healthy and be back soon. So, yeah, he's actually on the leaderboard now. You don't have to change the qualification setting. He is qualified for the batting title, at least as of today. Although maybe he won't be if he misses a few games, but he trails only Mike Trout among position players. So please let us see a full, healthy Byron Buxton season. Health gods. Yeah, we talked about not fully knowing our powers. We need to get on it quick, Ben, because if we can deploy them on anyone's behalf, I think that Buxton is a a, a worthy recipient, although uh, as long as he is on the field, he clearly does not need our help to be good. No. He is quite good all on his own. But yeah, I hope that he is on the mend and on the mend soon. I'm over these injuries. I think uh, I think no more injuries. We should just have a rule. It should be in the next collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, yeah there have been too many. We talked about that the other day. There was just a Ken Rosenthal piece that had more numbers on that injuries up again but this is not one I wanted and to add another loss to injury the twins lost that game in extra innings which means that they're now 0-7 in extras and 0-11 in Manfred Ball games and 11-8 in regular nine inning games so that's fun yeah it is um you know, if if anyone is going to join our brigade, if anyone is going to fight the fight when yes. the time comes, I think that various representatives of the twins might be on board. What a strange, it remains a strange season. Some things are starting to make a bit more sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Yankees are only two and a half games out of the East and yep. the Rays are two games out and like the Padres are are a half game out in the West and the Dodgers are a bit behind them. And sure, like we might have anticipated that <laughs> that, that might arise, but we probably didn't see the Giants in, in the number one spot. So some things are starting to, to work their way out. But right now, Cleveland is atop the AL Central and I... I didn't think that that would happen maybe at any point over the course of the season. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird one. I do like that there are some some new strange and by strange I mostly mean we haven't seen them there in in a minute folks in the Fangraphs top 10 when it comes to position player war. So mm-hmm. Chris Bryant, resurgent Chris Bryant, yeah, is 6th he in I guess technically he and J.D. Martinez are tied for 1.8 wins, which, uh, you know, like at this point in the season, these guys are all basically the same guy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But we have to rank things because we are a ranking type. We are ranking sorts. And Trey Turner and Cedric Mullins. I think that we might have... I don't know if we we gave... Gave Baltimore the credit that, well, that some members of their roster deserved. I think that I underestimated the degree to which they would have like more than one fun guy. Yeah. Um, so here we are with Cedric Mullins. Cedric Mullins the second, I apologize. Not Cedric mm-hmm. Mullins the first. Who knows no. about him? Mm-hmm. Cedric Mullins the second. There he is. 1.5 yeah. wins. Hmm. 
So I suppose we should discuss the news of the day, huh? We're recording on Thursday afternoon here after the surprising and yet also almost inevitable news. I don't know. We can talk about whether it's surprising or not, but the Angels have designated Albert Pujols for assignment, which amounts to releasing him likely. So this is the end of an era, the end of the Albert Pujols in Anaheim era. And one would think, although it's not official, probably the end of the Albert Pujols in the major leagues era. This is something that I think is simultaneously surprising and predictable. It's like I'm reading the MLB Trade Rumors post about this, and it describes it as a shocking move and a stunning end to one of the largest contracts in Major League history. And it was shocking and stunning for a second. And yet this is something I alluded to the other day when we talked about the Angels' defensive issues and the fact that Pujols is probably contributing to that and not contributing a lot in a positive sense. And I sort of wondered what would happen there with Jared Walsh hitting as well as he is and Shohei Otani holding down the DH spot and Pujols just not producing on the field. This has seemed like something that we've talked about as a possibility for years and years. I mean, there was definitely a a point in this 10-year deal where I thought it was very likely that he would not last the whole time. And in fact, I probably would have been surprised that he had lasted this long. This was probably not the only time we talked about it on the show, but I know way back on episode 1140, which was November 2017, Jeff and I speculated about how long he would last. And I think we kind of came up with early 2019 for when the Angels might pull the plug on Pujols. And when they signed Shohei Otani the following month, I wrote a piece that was like, this is great news for everyone. Every angel except Albert Pujols, and I wondered whether that would accelerate the end of his angel's career. I guess it's like you could think either this could or should have happened years ago, or it shouldn't have happened at all because he's almost at the finish line of this contract. But, you know, he is in his, I think, fifth consecutive season of being a sub-replacement level player, according to War, and really hasn't been an above-average player since 2014, I guess. So it's been a while, like he has not had a good season, but he hasn't really had a significantly worse season than he has had lately or that he had last season. So it's both predictable, but also, I guess, just the fact that he was so close to the end, you kind of figured, well, given who he is and maybe his standing in that clubhouse and in the game and all he's accomplished and his off the field charitable work and the fact that people seem to respect him and everything, maybe they just bury him on the bench or something for the rest of the season. But maybe part of it is that he didn't want to be buried on the bench. (laughs) So that could have been what precipitated this. Yeah, it seems that there was, that that played at least some role, at least based on the early reporting that's come out, that he was frustrated with how much playing time he was getting. Yeah. I guess, and, you know, I can't really fault him for that. If I were a Hall of Famer, I think I'd have a hard time letting go of the idea that I should be on the field every day and that a turnaround might be, you know, in the offing. And I don't know, like, Pujols doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who pulls up his baseball savant page every morning and is like, well, my (laughs) ex-slugging is 551. And so a a turnaround is surely in the offing. But I guess if you want to put some store in that, there's peripheral suggestion that he should be producing better than he has so far. And I think that what struck me about it was the timing, if only because... (sighs) 
he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't, he clearly does not merit an everyday spot. He does not merit a starting spot anymore. And I don't say that to disrespect the playing career he put together in St. Louis, which remains like one of the best things that I ever got to watch even part of in my experience as a baseball fan. But it seems like the amount of playing time he was due was likely predictable this winter, right? Like the the Angels should have had a sense that he was going to be relegated to bench duty at the very best. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of strikes me as odd that this was a move that wasn't made much sooner, right? That there wasn't yep. some you know, press conference this winter and they could have they could have had him there with his family and they could have talked, like you said, about his long and productive career and his sure Hall of Fame induction and his charitable work. And, you know, they could have, even if it wasn't really a mutual decision, they could have dressed it up that way and they could have made it about spending more time with his family and being able to focus on his work improving the community and any number of things. I think that it's just, you know, it's like May 6th. And he's Mm -hmm. definitely a first ballot Hall of Famer. And it just seems like while he isn't someone who deserves a roster spot right now, I do think that he is due some amount of like dignity in the way he goes. And I think that this was a bit, this was unceremonious. Like that's the most charitable way that we can describe it is that this was (laughs) like an unceremonious way to go out. It seems, it seems very strange that we will look back and see that, like, not getting a start against Ryan Yarborough <laughs> <laughs> was what did it, right? That's yeah. that's weird. That shouldn't be part of Pujols' narrative. <laughs> and I know that it's really unusual that guys get to pick their exits. Like, the more I think about it, the more sort of rare and special the, like, the David Ortiz farewell is, right? Like, when yeah. Ortiz went out, he was coming off a season where he had a 139 WRC plus and he'd had 37 home runs. And it was clear that like his body was just not in a place where he was going to be productive as a big leaguer for all that much longer. And he got to do his farewell and he got to sort of make memories with fans in every ballpark. And he got sombreros and cowboy boots and all (laughs) kinds of crap that I don't know if he still has it, but in the moment, like it was nice that, that whoever thought, you know what we should give this guy is a sombrero or <laughs> whatever. I don't know what he got. But I think he did get a sombrero because I remember writing about his retirement tour and being like, that seems weird. So anyway, mm-hmm. you know, he got to decide. And then he had a year where he hit 315, 401, 620. He had a 163 WRC plus. He was worth four and a half wins. You know, like he just got to be David Ortiz one more time. And I don't think that a season like that was ever going to be in the offing for pool holes. But if you give anybody like a an opportunity to come out and tip his cap and give him a little something like it should be Albert Pujols like he never got to be handed a big fish in Seattle or whatever (laughs) they would have handed him because, you know, there's there's fish there. So like he never got a big fish and he never I don't know, like. Him not getting another opportunity to, like, and who knows, he may yet get another opportunity, but as it stands now, it seems, like you said, probably pretty unlikely that he's going to get a ton of playing time, and now if a retirement tour is done, it's going to be very strange (laughs) and stilted, and so it's just, it's just a, it's unfortunate, it's an unfortunate way to go, and... I don't think that he, I don't know. I don't think he deserved a roster spot, but I think he deserved better than this. So yeah. I think it's a little weird. 
I do see what you're saying. It is abrupt and unceremonious. I would also say, I mean, the the dignified exit is sort of a two-way street. I mean, you know, the the player has to be willing to walk through that door, right? So I don't know how much to fault the Angels for this. Maybe there will be subsequent reporting where we'll hear exactly how this went down. But... You know, I think some of the examples you're talking about, I mean, yes, I think it's great if you get a David Ortiz, Chipper Jones, Mariano Rivera type exit where those players are still at or near the top of their games and the game and they kind of go out on top and there's no question about whether they should be playing and starting and everyone gets to come see them. But that is the exception to the rule. I think, you know, generally players don't go out on top because they want to keep playing if they're playing well. And so you don't get that all that often. And what you do get is players just declining and, you know, deciding to call it quits or not really having that choice. And so I think it would have been nice you know, for the fans, I guess, for the legacy of Albert Pujols, if this had been more mutual, if it had been the Angels saying, hey, we just can't give you a roster spot anymore, and Pujols saying, yep, I understand, I see my stats too, I'll just retire, right? And and there's some precedent for that, like Mike Schmidt, for example, like, if that were it, if, if he were just willing and ready to hang him up and say, I've had enough, then you get that last game, and I'm sure the Angels would have been amenable to that, and you get the last curtain call and tip of the cap and maybe some special moment and everything. But that's predicated on Pujols saying, yeah, I'm I'm ready to go. And doesn't sound like he was. I mean, you know, I, I would hope that they gave him the option of that at least. And so if, if he didn't take that option, then I don't really know what the Angels could have done here because I think, you know, he has been not a very productive player for a very long time. And I don't want to dwell on that aspect of Pujols' legacy and give short shrift to his greatness, but I think it's inevitable to talk about both because his career is basically bisected where he had, you know, one of the best decades ever and then a not very good decade, frankly, and he is unique among great players, I think, in just how great he was, and then how long he was not great. (laughs) And so it's hard to avoid that part of the Pujol story because, you know, there have been lots of players who've been great, and then, yeah, they decline toward the tail end of their career. But with Pujols, it's like basically half of his career almost. He was just kind of hanging on. I mean, certainly the last five years, but even more than that, really, he was not more the than an average player or so. And so to have that long tail after such high heights, I, I think is pretty unprecedented. Yeah. So it's hard to avoid that aspect of his story too, because it's just been so long since he was good. Like by the time he is inducted into the Hall of Fame, deservedly, it will have been more than 15 years really since he was playing at that level yeah and so there's a whole generation of fans who like saw albert pujols like that's the thing there's always a generation of fans who like don't remember the player's greatness but in this case there's a generation of fans who remember watching albert pujols and not seeing the great inner circle hall of famer albert pujols and it was just years and years and thousands and thousands of plate appearances and you know i think That probably in most places this would have happened even sooner. It seems like maybe it happened now just because 
the Angels finally have a replacement for him who's clearly better in Jared Walsh, who's kind of playing out of position because Pujols has been holding down first base and Otani's been DHing. And that's partly a product of the Angels' outfield depth and lack thereof as well. It's not like they have some star outfielder ready to go, but given the sub-replacement level wars, like in theory, it should not be hard to improve upon Pujols, frankly. And the defensive issues we mentioned, I, I just, I have a hard time faulting the Angels for deciding that this had to be done because, you know, it, it's not the only problem on their roster. It's not the only thing that has kept them out of the playoffs these no. last few years, far from it. But there is a point where you want to field a competitive team. Maybe 40-something Albert Pujols just can't be part of that. And, you know, especially if he is not thrilled with being benched, you know, it's that's a hard situation to navigate because yeah. do you want this all-time great who's like, on the bench and not happy to be there. What does that do to your clubhouse dynamic? What does it do to just release him? (laughs) That can't be good either. So, you know, it's like, I don't know that there's a graceful end unless the player is on the same page and says, yeah, it's time for me to walk away. Yeah, it is a tricky, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly tricky thing to, to navigate. And you're right. I don't, you know, we don't know exactly how things progress within the organization, why it wasn't tenable in December, but became either tenable now or imperative for them now. And kind of what the, the tipping point was for them. I don't know how the clubhouse will respond to that. I imagine that we'll hear something of it. They are the only evening game today. So mm-hmm. I imagine that a good deal of that broadcast will be about his release, but it's just, um, I imagine it's a really difficult thing because you, there's so much ego bound up in your ability to do that job well. I mean, we all have ego in our ability to to do our jobs well. And so few of us do our jobs at a Hall of Fame level at any point in our careers. (laughs) So I think it would take a very sort of deft bit of people management and a really trusting relationship between the player and the organization to to get that right. And even then it might not be a thing that you can do without ripping the bandaid. So it is a tricky situation and I don't envy them having to find a way to have that conversation, but it does seem like perhaps better expectations could have been set going in because for him to be seemingly surprised or frustrated that he wasn't getting more playing time than he is suggests that sort of where he stood in the organization was not maybe as well communicated to him as it ought to have been. So that's too bad. And, you know, there's been all this joking about how he'll end up in Chicago with the White Sox because of La Russa, or he'll end up back in St. Louis as a way to like say goodbye. I wouldn't be surprised if he signed like a one day contract with St. Louis yeah. so that he could retire a Cardinal. But I also, like you said, if he is this frustrated that he's not getting playing time, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he tries to look around to latch on somewhere because it seems like mm-hmm. he isn't done. So, yeah. <sighs> but it is a shame. People were making a lot of his. I want to. I want to share two stats. So people were making a lot of the fact that Albert Pujols is currently. He is not only the active leader. He is. He is the leader. <laughs> maybe the all-time leader for ground into double plays. Oh yes, four hundred three. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, four hundred three, and that's not great to ground into that many, but. People were like making a big thing out of this and like 
the number two guy behind him is Cal Ripken Jr. And then it was Yvonne Rodriguez and then Henry right. Aaron. And then there's Miggy, which, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're going to have to have this conversation again <laughs> yes. very soon and yes. perhaps for a lot longer because good gravy are there a number of years left on that contract. <laughs> um, yeah. And then Carl Ustremski and Dave Winfield and Eddie yeah. Murray and Jim Rice. So like, yes, it is a measure, but everybody <laughs> calm down. And then that inspired me because I live my life in reference to a very select number of deities, I suppose, inspired me to look up how many Mike Trout has and it's 58. It's only 58. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. even, he's not even on this page at Baseball Reference. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of guys. And so it cuts off at 80 with Joel Youngblood. And uh, <laughs> that's a great name. But yeah. can't find my trout on here because he's well, amazing. It is a measure of uh, longevity as well yes, as proclivity to exactly. ground into double plays. And that's why the top names are all Hall of Famers. So yep. it's actually a distinguished group to be a part of because you have yes. to have played forever to make it there. So Forever and ever. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's such a, a strange career and I still can't quite figure out what happened to Albert Pujols. I, I don't know why he declined as precipitously as he did and in the way that he did. And yeah. I know there's always been speculation and controversy about his age and all that, but it almost doesn't matter how old he is or was because like, no matter how old he was at any point, you wouldn't expect him to decline that steeply. Like usually right. the decline is more gradual. And so, right. yeah, you know, if you're older then maybe it happens sooner, but that doesn't mean it, it happens all at once the way that it did with him. And it happened in such an odd way where I remember Sam writing about this for Baseball Prospectus back in 2012, and the piece was just like, Albert Pujols never walks anymore. And yeah. that's the weird thing that I think is sort of not mentioned as often as it could be, like the reason for Pujols' decline. Like, yeah, he's had lower body issues and injury issues, and he's obviously slowed down and everything, but a lot of it was really just his plate discipline sort yeah. of fell apart. Like. His last year in St. Louis and, and then after that, like he was always a, a disciplined, selective hitter who walked a lot. And then you can just kind of draw a line like 2011 and after and 2010 and, and before. And it, his walk rate just like fell precipitously and his chase rate increased. And I don't know exactly what to attribute that to because he remains a pretty good contact hitter by the standards of the league. So it, it's not as if he... I don't know, suddenly lost his eyesight or something like he, right. he doesn't strike out all that much by 2021 standards. Even now, he's pretty good contact hitter and he has retained some power. That's kind of all he had going for him in the latter years here. So I don't know if it was a, a conscious thing, like it was a mystery to Sam when he wrote about it in 2012. And it's as much a mystery to me now. But I think that was a, a big part of why he declined the way he did. And and so there's a, an interesting stat. I wouldn't call it a fun fact, but Bill James noted this back in March that it really is unique that Pujols got to the heights that he did and then fell as far from those heights as he did. And, and the way that James put it was looking at batting average, which, you know, not the most telling stat, but I think in this case, it is pretty illuminating. And Pujols, of course, was a, a very high average hitter in his prime, and he ended up, if this is the end, at 298 career. And so James tweeted, Pujols was actually 180 hits above 300 
No other hitter was even half that far above 300 and finished under 300. So I think it was the high water mark was at the end of the 2010 season. Pujols was 180 hits over 300. So basically he had 180 more hits at that point than he needed to have a, a career 300 average. And he ended up all the way under 300. And that decline is, I mean, it dwarfs anyone else's, which yeah. is a, a testament to how long he played, like the the longest. So that's uh, 180 hits. And the second biggest decline for anyone who was over 300 at one point and, and then ended up under 300 is 77 for George Davis, who played from 1890 to 1901. And then Fred Tenney, who was in that same era, but Matt Holliday, 66, Wally Moses, 61, Mickey Mantle, 57, Dave Parker, 56. Like you could put together the next couple guys and they wouldn't even combine to to have that kind of decline, which in a way it's a testament to how good Pujols was that he got as long a leash as he did during his decline phase. Like a lot of that was the contract and the angels, I guess, just not being willing to say this is a, a sunk cost and cut ties, but also like at least for a while, some legitimate hope that maybe he would regain that greatness that he had. So You have to be a heck of a player to basically get a decade of not being very good and still have a roster spot. Because, you know, if Albert Pujols had a different name and resume and contract and the same stats, he would not have lasted nearly as long as he did. So that was, in a sense, a, a tribute to him. Although, you know, it's sort of a shame that it ended that way. But I don't fault Pujols at all for wanting to play as long as possible and still wanting to play like you know I think there's something to be said for having the humility to recognize that you're not the player that you were and that we're all mortal and we all age and and decline in some ways so I wouldn't say be in denial about it but I'd also say he can play as long as he wants to play and as long as someone will let him play. But, you know, the contract entitles him to a salary. It does not entitle him to a roster spot. And at a certain point, you do have to justify it. So, you know, it is kind of odd that it might come down to Ryan Yarbrough and his uh, yeah. whatever career six for nine versus Yarbrough. But it would have been easier to find spots for Pujols to play if he were like more of a lefty masher or something. But yeah. he just wasn't like no. he didn't have have much of a a career platoon split which you know I guess he was good all the time when he was good but that made it harder to find a role for him now I think because it wasn't like you know his skills eroded against same-handed pitchers but he was still crushing lefties or something you know he wasn't doing that either yeah I imagine that it's you know it's hard when you on some level he has to know that he has been the player he's been over the last couple of years. And I imagine that that actually, in a weird way, makes it harder to let go because you want to go out on a different note. You know, you want to Mm -hmm. have it be, you know, a different moment and you want to remind yourself of when you were like, you know, a young, strong man who thought you were going (laughs) to live forever. And Mm -hmm. I remember I looked up the piece I wrote when Ortiz was on his retirement tour this is back when i was still with baseball prospectus and he said i wish i could play another 40 years but it doesn't work that way and i imagine it's a lot easier to let in that reality when you can sort of dictate the course for yourself and go out on a high note and be able to say that you 
sort of gave it your best and gave the fans something that they recognize and that it's probably a lot harder to do that when you feel like you're still grasping for something that resembles what you once were and the player that you once were. And so, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know that it's, I don't want to be like overly sentimental about it. I'm the one who keeps crowing and pleading with the Angels to just put a 500 team around Mike Trout already. (laughs) So I don't think that you carry you carry these guys just to carry them, but it's very human and it's very relatable to still be looking for that and clawing for it. And it's like, now you look back on his stolen base stuff. And if you want to put a sentimental narrative on anything, it's like, Oh boy, Albert, (laughs) (laughs) you were literally running as fast as you could and you couldn't get there. And like that part of it's Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. So I don't know. I'm glad he got his milestone moments we mm-hmm. still had opportunity even in the twilight of his career to celebrate big accomplishments that I think when it comes time for him to be inducted in the Hall of Fame and we're kind of looking back on his career in its totality, you know, we'll we'll focus on his tenure with St. Louis and the kind of player he was then. And, and you know, he produced 80 war in that time by yeah. Fangraph's war, right? And so we'll look at that and go, wow, I can't, it's amazing that he was able to do that. And then he'll have these special moments throughout his tenure in Anaheim that that we can kind of pick out. And I think that for a lot of people, like the, the less good times in Los Angeles will fade and we'll remember those milestones. And I don't know if that'll be true for Angels fans, but I think it'll certainly be true for the rest of us. But in the meantime, it's it's really too bad. Ortiz did not get a sombrero. I did reference a sombrero in my Someone piece got a about sombrero. him. Chipper Jones maybe got a sombrero. Maybe I wrote a piece jo- about all the farewell gifts he got maybe, too. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's what I was thinking of. He did get, well, I mean, I was thinking of referencing it in the piece, but I cannot for the life of me now remember why I chose it in the piece at all. But maybe it was Chipper Jones. He did get, Ortiz did get a custom Stetson from the Astros and then um, a belt buckle and cowboy boots from the Rangers. And I wonder if those two franchises coordinated their gifts. <laughs> I wonder if they were like, we'll get him the boots and the buckle, you get him the Stetson, and then he can just walk around Texas and look like he fits right in. Because mm-hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't want him to have two Stetsons. No. That's ridiculous. Spare Stetson, no. Apparently the Padres got him a custom surfboard. It has I remember his, that. Yeah. It has his whole body on it. Mm-hmm. The Angels got him a custom portrait of himself. Oddly, yep. the picture <laughs> of him receiving the custom portrait prominently features Albert Pujols. <laughs> and then uh, the Athletics got him a large bottle of Cabernet. And the article I'm reading about it does not specify the volume of that bottle, but now I really want to know. Was it like a very large bottle? Was it like a, you know, one of those like novelty gift bottles? Bottles of wine. Mm, anyway, <laughs> well, Albert couldn't afford to buy himself some farewell gifts, I guess, if he if he wants to. But yeah, it was really a great career. We're speaking of it in the past tense here. It's not officially over, although you know, if he thinks that he's gonna find a starting job elsewhere, I hate to break it to him, but I don't know that there will be any other rooms in the end. But yeah, if he signs one of those sentimental, you know, retire as a cardinal kind of contracts, that would be nice. Or yeah. heck, even if they let him play for a game or 
get some at bats, that would be fun. I just I can't really imagine that any contending team is gonna put him in the lineup or give him more playing time than the Angels were willing to. And you know, I don't know if he's even like a draw that some team that's out of it would sign him just to sell some tickets or have him chase some milestones or something. I I don't know what the odds of that are. So he may find that he can't do any better elsewhere. And I hope if that's the case that he's not bitter about it and that he's able to accept that he had a heck of a run. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, he's he's sixth all time in war through age 30 and he will be passed by Mike Trout in short order there, but still still be seventh all time. And he's also 11th all time in war through age 32 Age 30 was kind of his last great year. Age 32 was kind of his last very good year. 11th all time there. And then the contrast is, you know, in war after age 30, he is uh, 226th all time. And in war after age 32, he is 329th all time. And that is notable because he played for a really long time (laughs) after age 30 and age 32. He's not one of these guys who like had their career cut off by an injury or something. He is still going. So he had a lot of time to accrue more war and didn't do it. But, you know, he was really incredible when he was with the Cardinals and finishing top 10 in MVP voting every single season. And I think maybe what we overlook is that not only was he one of the best hitters of all time during that time, but he was a really good all-around player and just a, a great defensive first baseman and a good base runner and base stealer and, you know, still sort of had those instincts at the end, just not the physical skills, but he could do it all. He really was just machine-like, which is how he got the nickname. I saw some speculation on Twitter from actual news, actual newsmen, actual mm-hmm. news sorts that perhaps Seattle would be interested in his services. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think that will happen. But I initially was like, that's wild. Why would they do that? <laughs> and then I realized that Evan White has a 22 WRC plus. Oh, no. 22. <laughs> he is, Ben, he's a first baseman. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. Mm. 141, 202, 205. Ugh, Hi, Hachi Machi. I don't know yeah. what I'm trying to say. I'm making sounds. We're just gonna start making sounds. Like I don't uh, think you can be a good enough defensive first baseman to make up for that. So. I will submit that you cannot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what you thought the Angels were the only people who were gonna be sad about stuff today? Oh no, we are yeah. <laughs> going to roll through the West. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so I guess that's our little baseball eulogy for Albert Pujols if we don't see him again. But, you know, this was a long time coming, and it finally came. And I hope that the Angels will be a better team, at least if they're going to make this move. I hope they find an outfielder, whether it's Brandon Marsh or Joe Adele or someone from outside the organization. I would really like to see Mike Trapp make the playoffs and Shohei Otani make the playoffs. And, you know, you do have to surround them with a competent supporting cast. And Albert Pujols, whatever his many merits and virtues and charitable activities, was just not a great supporting cast on the field for the past few years. So I wonder, I've speculated before that maybe the fact that he had some years where he was like really clutch and, you know, even though he wasn't a very good player in a context neutral sense, he he was kind of clutch and he drove in a lot of runs. And of course, he's had Mike Trout hitting ahead of him and he had like good RBI totals, even when he wasn't really a very good player 
anymore. And I wonder whether that helped prolong this too, but probably it's just, you know, lack of better options and just contract and salary and also just a recognition of what a giant he is in the game. So we can remember the better days. Yeah, I am grateful that I am um, not like I'm so old or anything, but I am grateful that I have like memories of him as a cardinal Mm -hmm. because we've talked about this before, but it's like, I think a lot of, a lot of youths, a lot of the much younger (laughs) folks, they just don't, they don't have them, or at least they aren't clear in the way they are once baseball memories start accumulating after you're like 10. Yeah. And so I'm very thankful that I have memories of him as that guy because that guy was awesome. Yep. Mm -hmm. So. All right, let's answer a few emails here, and I guess we can stay on the topic of the Angels for a moment. Mike asks, Baseball God comes to you with a proposition. He will allow you to draft the next generational talent, Trike Mount. In exchange, your team will have a 500 record for the next 20 years. (laughs) While you will never win a World Series with Trike, you will always have someone to root for. You will always have a compelling reason to watch games, celebrate milestones, and he will be the subject of numerous stat blasts. If you don't take Trike, there are no guarantees of your team's success. Do you take this deal if you're a GM? What about if you're a super fan? So let me make sure I, I heard this right again. So never better than 500? Yeah, you, you just have a 500 record every year for 500's, the next 20 years. 500's not so bad. It's not. I... <laughs> It can be worse. I'm going to sound like such a Mariners fan when I answer this question. Well, I'm a risk-averse person. (laughs) If you're a GM, I think you don't take this, right? I think that even the prospect of a generational talent, if you're never finishing better than 500, if you're just a 500 club, you probably say no because... You know, there are going to be a, there might be a fluky year where that's enough to get into the wild card. I guess there might even be a fluky year where, like, that's enough for you to proceed in the playoffs and, like, do well. But you're probably not a GM for very long, even if you have a generational talent. So I think if you're a GM, the answer is an obvious no, because you, you can do a lot with good non generational talents. So Mm -hmm. presumably you have more options and more pathways both to contention and to keeping your job if you do not take trike. I bet there are human people named Trike. I bet they yep. are they are young people named Trike. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> try not to sound judgmental about that, <laughs> but you know that it's true. So that's one answer. I think if you're a super fan, the calculus is a little bit different because your relationship with the team isn't bound by whether or not the team wins. You don't have an employment interest. You just want to root for a team that is exciting and if you have a generational guy it's probably going to be exciting a good amount of the time maybe not more often than not but a good amount of the time and uh your odds of seeing a 500 club kind of get their way into the wild card and go from there are a lot higher because again you're not like going to be out the door in five or seven years if it doesn't if it doesn't come together and coalesce so i think that you would be probably like 60 40 yes to no to take that deal if you are a fan because i think it's pretty special to get to say that you're like a fan of the best player a generational talent like that's really exciting you're like i know whose jersey i'm gonna wear for the rest of my life and i get to cheer for that guy as one of my guys and that's satisfying in a way that 
you know, even being like a broader fan of the game and thus a fan of hopefully its best player, you're not, you know, the relationship isn't quite the same as it is when it's your favorite team and he's the best guy in the game. So I I think, yeah, I think you'd say yes more often than not. And you'd probably get a couple of postseason appearances and you wouldn't get a World Series in all likelihood or you wouldn't at all, right? Is that one of the provisos right. of the yeah, question? No World Series. Well, you wouldn't win, but you might get there. That's exciting mm-hmm. too. And so, yeah, I think like 60-40, you'd say, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's tough. I think, yes, if you're the GM, you definitely don't take say this. No. If, you say if no anything, ab- immediately. Having the generational players while being 500 gives you even less job security because yeah. it makes it more glaring that you have failed to field a winning team while you have the, the best player. So that's a definite no. I always wonder with these questions, like whether you retain your awareness that you have made this bargain. Like, do you remember that you made this deal? Because that almost changes it for me. Like, if I know that my team is not going to win a World Series for the next 20 years, I, I think that would really sap much of my interest. Like, it's it's not the You'd only be reason. surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't know the whole time. Like, that's no. how it's turned out. But it could have turned out differently. So that's what I'm saying. Like, if you remember that you made this deal and you can just write off the next 20 years, I think it would be hard, actually, to stay invested. And, and really, even if you have this generational player, But if your memory is wiped after you make the deal, and as far as you know, you might have a better than 500 team, so you're blissfully ignorant of the fact that you have no chance, like... That makes a big difference to me. And, you know, obviously many teams do not win a World Series within a 20-year span. And maybe they have a better than 500 team, hopefully, in that span. But they also don't have this generational player. I'm not a fan. I don't have a rooting interest. But I have enjoyed Angels games, as you know, more than I have enjoyed most teams' games, even over this period where they haven't been a great team, just because I've enjoyed watching the individual exploits. So... I think if you were to sum it up, like probably they would be in the the top half of rooting experiences over that 20 year span. Like they would have, you know, as many wins as at least half of the teams over that span. And you'd have this great generational player and a lot of the other teams would have done worse and also would not have won a World Series and would have not had the experience of of watching Trek Mount. So I think you could do a lot worse. But I think if you're aware of the deal, you don't sign up for it because I I think as many reasons as there are to watch baseball and as many different ways as there are to enjoy it, like ultimately, if you are a fan and you're someone who approaches the sport through that lens, you really do want your team to win. And (laughs) it's hard to maintain interest if they don't, and especially if you somehow know beforehand that they won't. Yeah, I guess you would want to get like bopped on the head. So you didn't know because the thing is, uh, if you got bopped on the head and you didn't know and you have a generational player and you're like a 500 team over the last couple seasons, you're going to go into the next couple seasons as long as that guy's like like the guy being like, oh, yeah, we have a chance to win this thing. And I think that 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 counts for a lot, like the feeling like you might be in it is pretty meaningful to the fan experience. But I think your yours is a good point that if you know for sure, like this you're going to get to watch this guy and you might get to see postseason action, but you're definitely not winning the World Series. Your experience of it might be pretty different. Although getting to watch the generational guy and 500 baseball, 
depending on your pre-existing fan experience, might sound really great. (laughs) (laughs) Again, just, Mm -hmm. you know, like to pick a team like the Mariners that might you might be like, that's really good. Yeah, there is a point at which if you never win and you have this generational player, then it it does start to smart even more and it almost taints the player's career. Like, not that it makes him any worse a player, but I think it is part of the legacy, right? It's like the, you know, the Ernie Banks uh, sort of career where it's like, oh, that's one of the more notable things about you is that, well, you never won a World Series and there are many players in that boat, many great players in that boat, but I think that kind of becomes part of your story. It doesn't diminish what you did or your talent or anything, but it becomes frustrating at a certain point. You know, if if Mike Trout never wins one and never gets an opportunity to win one for the rest of his career, it won't affect my perception of how great Mike Trout was at baseball, but it does sort of sap from the overall experience and, and makes it more frustrating, frankly, that you had Mike Trout or Trike Mout all that time and never kind of cashed in. So, yeah, I, I think if you're going to be a mediocre team, it's a lot more fun to have the generational player who can become even more special to you, maybe, because there's not much else to be excited about. But there is a, a point where I think you almost feel like you're squandering that player. You've been entrusted with this talent and you're not making the most of it. So that's a really compelling counter argument to my idea that it feels appreciably better to have the best guy be one of your guys because we just yeah. get to appreciate Mike Trout. And like, mm-hmm. we don't have to stress about it. So what the really the ideal fan construction, like fan experience when it comes to appreciating the best player in the game, not to being a fan generally, but I might, I might submit that the best way is to be neither a fan of that specific team nor a fan of a rival team, because right. I see Mariners fans struggle with Mike Trout. They want to love him, some of them. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very content to dislike him tremendously. But like some of them are like, I want to like this guy, but then he wallops us. And I get that. I don't think that that's a failure of character to not be like enthusiastic about Mike Trout because he comes in and he's like, I really am just going to wallop all your guys. So that doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a fan of the Mariners. So or the (laughs) Astros or the or the Rangers or. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like you're sitting there going, oh, this guy, I got to see him 19 times a season. The yeah. A's, that's the other team they West. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long week, man. I'm kind of tired. Yeah. I could have I been smooth and, and not brought it up. And pe- Some people would have wondered, did she forget the, the last team, the AL West? But they wouldn't have had proof that I did, and I just admitted to it. I'm a, I am the ump saying that I guessed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I applaud you for your honesty. All right. Question from David, Patreon supporter. He says, I'm listening to episode 1688 and the discussion of a pitcher throwing slower. My son and I recently went to a ball game and had great seats by the dugout. We watched the pitcher warm up and marveled at how fast the ball went from release to catcher's glove. Then we looked at the radar gun, 89 miles per hour. What? Many times we, I sometimes join in on your conversations when no one else is listening, (laughs) have talked about standing in the box. It most likely ends up with us running away or vomiting. This made me think, what if we had an automatic strikeout rule? Granted, this might only be relevant for another five months, but if a pitcher steps into the box and forfeits his at bat, is that okay? Assuming he's been told not to swing, the greatest fear is a hit by pitch that causes injury, but some might not even want the pitcher running the bases if they happen to draw a walk. Is there merit to the, I don't wanna, at bat? Can a player just refuse to step into the box and take their out? 
social shame is reason number one, I suppose. But that in itself is a poor reason to act in any particular fashion if the alternative is possibly being hit with a five-ounce rock propelled at 95 miles per hour, even if it is by accident. I think you would get benched for a while. Yeah. (laughs) I think that if you just truly refuse to stand in and take your at-bat, even if you're a pitcher, I think that you would ride the bench for a minute. I think they would have a conversation about want. I think that the word Mm -hmm. want would come up a fair amount. And, like, no team would want to just automatically give away an out because, like, maybe the guy does put it in play or maybe he lays down a sacrifice bunt. Like, there's absolutely no way that that's going to become a thing. But I kind of... Wanna, I kind of want to watch baseball people react to the idea of it because <laughs> I think few things would inspire more like Ugh, than the idea of a guy just truly refusing to stand in because <laughs> you gotta you gotta try a little bit yeah and like how many pitchers pitch I would imagine oh this is an interesting question and now I'm forgetting if this if there was any kind of positional breakdown in in Rob's uh, research into hit by pitch but. I would speculate that pitchers are among the least hit by pitch. I would think so. Yeah. As a as a demographic, I mean, I know that like you know, because <laughs> you can just throw them fastballs and they're not going to hit it, right? You could just be right. like, it's fine. So there's no real need to. Not that no one ever throws inside to them, but it happens very rarely. And I think there's sort of an understanding that you're not going to try to like intentionally plunk if you're gonna intentionally plunk anyone you're not gonna hit the day's starter because like that's very bad form Mm -hmm. you might also get benched for that but (laughs) you would just you i mean like presumably this reticence would present itself so early in your baseball career that you would just never advance like you (laughs) might get benched in little league (laughs) they might be like well yeah except there are a lot of pitchers as we've said who get to the majors not having hit (laughs) in a game for a while because you know they'd never have to do it (laughs) in the minors or even in college so it could happen but yeah i would think pitchers already don't get hit much haven't seen the the breakdown in the data but i I I think very rarely yeah Yeah. a because uh maybe some pitcher solidarity (laughs) yeah not wanting to hit your counterpart or or put yourself at risk of getting hit the next time you're up but also i think just because you know generally guys don't throw quite as hard when they're facing pitchers like they take a little off they feel like they can just throw strikes and get away with it so they don't necessarily have to make them chase and throw way off the zone so i would think that that is the case not to say that the risk is zero but there are definitely times where pitchers do this in effect by going up to the plate and not swinging and they're instructed not to swing in some cases whether because of an injury or just not wanting to endanger them or, or whatever and so the the effect there is essentially the same i guess you might every now and then draw a walk by accident or something but I guess you could say why even make the attempt, why pantomime hitting if I'm not even going to swing. But, you know, I don't think you need a rule for this, first of all, because you can already do this. If if you want to do this, you could just not step into the batter's box and you would have strikes assessed against you as you refuse to enter the batter's box. That is already a rule. So you don't need a separate rule. And also, I think, yes, you would get shamed for this for for being unwilling to step in there as relatable as that might be to those of us on the outside oh you would just you would get you'd get shamed forever i mean yes you're right to say that like this does happen for injury reasons or for strategic reasons uh lakers like hey just stand in there and take them but you would never volunteer it yeah 
And you at least, you know, why not run up the guy's pitch count, right? Like even if he's not throwing at max effort against the opposing pitcher, it's taken a little more out of his arm than just saying, I accept the strikeout and I will now (laughs) not even emerge from the dugout or I will wheel around and return to the dugout. I don't know how you would go about this, but, you know, at least uh, make the guy throw three pitches. Oh, yeah, for sure. This all reminds me in a very tangential way of a, a lovely tiny anecdote that I was made aware of um, in the process of editing the Nationals list this year. And I believe our contributor, Tess Taruskin, is who found this little anecdote. So there is a, a pitcher in the national system, not a good system, that's not the point of the story, named Todd Peterson, who went viral, I, apparently, for he pitched five good relief innings and then hit a double Big double in the SEC tournament a couple of years ago before admitting in his post-game interview that he'd lied to his coach about hitting in high school so that his coach would let him bat. <laughs> it is spectacular. And he hit a big double and he admits it. And <laughs> and his coach, Paul Manarini, says, I'm glad you lied to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it's pretty good. Great. So anyway, I'll try to find the interview. It's on YouTube somewhere. But, you know, see, this is what happens when you maybe sometimes have to let them hit and they lie Mm -hmm. to you about stuff. Mm -hmm. But then they do hit doubles. So now the incentives are all wonky. Yeah. All right. Mike in Trumbull, Connecticut says, I was watching the Orioles recently and noticed how enthusiastically Pedro Severino requested a review of a check swing. And it got me thinking, obviously, there is a lot of work done around catchers stealing strikes via framing. What kind of skills do you think a catcher needs to display in order to steal borderline swinging strikes from a corner umpire on a check swing? Is it better to stand up and ask, or is that a little too overeager? Do you stay in the squat and undersell it to give the impression that the call is obvious? Paint a picture of the perfect catcher reaction to capture a borderline swinging strike. Oh, man, this makes me want to watch like 200 swings and write a... (laughs) long thing about something. Sounds like a great use of your time. (laughs) Yeah. And I have so much. Wow. What a, I remember when we got this email thinking what a terrific question it was. And I didn't arrive at an answer because I am torn. On the one hand, I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of like gesturing, but like in a, hey, so you're going to, you're going to say he went, right? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. like in a, in a sort of modest way that seems to suggest I'm asking as a matter of form, but you, uh, an intelligent person who can see what just happened, are going to arrive at the obvious conclusion because, uh, you know, that's your job and you're good at it. Mm-hmm. And then I think that there is also something to the idea of like forcefully being like, did he go? Did he go? Right. I think he did go, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think they're both excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I think just showing the confidence, I think like acting as if, of course, you're going to get the call. Right. Just like no delay. You know, you don't think about it. Right. It's like instant reaction that you're, I guess, standing up or, or just making it very clear that you think that this was a strike and that you're expecting the umpire to go along with you and maybe just the the power of your personality will compel the umpire to go along and I don't know if that's actually the case or not. I could even see it backfire in oh, some yeah. cases. Maybe it's like presumptuous, you know, acting as if you are going to get a certain call and and umpires might say, "No, I'm not going to just give you that call because you gestured over here so expressively." So I could see it depending on the personality of the umpire, but 
in general, I think, you know, we're sort of wired to like listen to people who sound like they know what they're talking about, which is kind of an unfortunate aspect of human psychology because often the people who sound like they know what they're talking about, in fact, do not. And in fact, sometimes there's like an inverse correlation there, but you can kind of fake it till you make it in effect. So I think that's the way I would go if I were a catcher, just seem certain that it was definitely a, a swing and he went around and maybe the umpire would just feel peer pressured into going along with it. And plus, like if you have a really demonstrative gesture, then like the spotlight is on you as the ump, like everyone in the ballpark has seen that the catcher has uh, pointed to you and you're expected to make the call now. So now there's pressure on you there. So I think that would be better on the whole. <sighs> I think that as the catcher, you have a much broader, you have a lot more margin for error when it comes to this. I think that the place where it matters a lot more, sort of what your body language messages about your own confidence is when you are a hitter who asks for um, a ruling on a check swing call, which we don't see a ton. We do see hitters who do it. And I always wonder like how that's received. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think there, the body language might have the ability to sway the decision one way or the other much more significantly than it would if you're the catcher because it is sort of understood that like yeah you're gonna ask for help and and what have you but I don't know it's probably I would imagine that for a lot of umps there's more of a bright line between guys who are bothered that catchers ask at all and yeah. those who don't mind them asking kind of whatever that gesture ends up looking like I bet it breaks down more along those lines because I bet there are guys who are like, who are you to ask this question? You should leave that to the home plate umpire. But they Mm -hmm. don't always ask. Yeah, no, they don't. So, you know, they don't always ask. Sometimes we have to be like, eh. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that you would actually find a meaningful (laughs) effect here. Maybe, maybe you would find check swing framing, (laughs) but it wouldn't be nearly as meaningful as actual framing and receiving. Oh, yeah. I remember doing a long piece once where I tried to find out like, umpire check swing rates and I got some data on that which was not publicly available at the time and I don't even remember what I found I don't think I found anything all that useful about like (laughs) I was thinking like maybe some umpires you know they they always ring them up when they're appealed to and others never do and is there a big difference there and I don't remember finding anything that was like that significant or interesting but yeah link to the piece for anyone who wants to check that out that I just uh, did a terrible job of advertising so anyway (laughs) I doubt you would find like this would be worth, you know, several runs a season or something. But, you know, over the course of a career, maybe Maybe. if you could actually quantify it, there might be something there. Well, and and having said that, what is more likely to matter for a catcher getting a receptive call one way or the other is is sort of the willingness of the umpire to hear the appeal from them at all or not. I would imagine that the thing that would really move the needle is the umpire's propensity and sort of instinct to defer to their colleague at home versus not. That's probably the thing that, that moves mm-hmm. it the most. Yeah. Maybe. That might not be generous of me to assume. I mean, the thing that you really want to move it is whether or not the guy checked his swing. But <laughs> yeah, I think that we nice. can admit Yeah, I think we can admit that other stuff might operate in the background. So of mm-hmm. all the background things, I think deference to one's colleagues probably plays a really big role. And then how cheeky you think the the catcher is for asking is like eh, smaller. <laughs> right. 
All right. I've got two more, one of which is a stat blast. Here's the penultimate question from Garrett. I think there is a question in here somewhere, but it begins with more of a way of looking at something RJ McDaniel mentioned at the end of episode 1659. I am paraphrasing here, but I think RJ noted how our fandom of baseball, or any sports really, often undergoes so much change from childhood to teenhood to adulthood. Whether it's league-altering trades aimed at big air quotes financial flexibility or horrific actions and words coming from front office personnel or ongoing minor league contraction or MLB's inability to recognize the marketability and truly likability of the game's young stars, I have often found myself increasingly more drawn to the community of baseball and less so to the actual capital G game itself. As folks more deeply rooted in the industry of baseball, Do you find that this feeling is shared or common among people in the game, writers, prospect evaluators, even scouts or lower-ranking team personnel, or who work directly with it? If I were brave enough to venture a guess based on my own bubble in baseball Twitter, I would think the answer must be yes, but I'm curious about your perspective, particularly when you have the opportunity to converse with people in the industry as opposed to just those at the margins. Well, I don't think that the community is unimportant. Mm -hmm. I think that baseball people like hanging out with other baseball people, if only because other baseball people are the only people who have the built-in tolerance to put up with as much baseball talk (laughs) as baseball people want to engage in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think that for a lot of them, like they really are, they really care about the game. They care about Mm -hmm. the game a lot. They care about the game in a way that like actually would probably make a lot of fans feel really good about baseball as an industry because we spend so much time rightly talking about the ways in which teams are not necessarily trying to win and, you know, the way that ownership is prioritizing uh, profit and all of the sort of nasty stuff in the center of the game and at its edges. And I think that a lot of fans would be really heartened to discover just how much baseball people really love and care about baseball like just really wake up wanting to engage with the game every day Mm -hmm. and it's a job and it has aspects and you know these depend on kind of what you do within the industry that are really hard and that require a lot of time and often a lot of time away from your family a lot of time at work and so I think that it can ebb and flow for people but I think that a lot of baseball people and this perhaps at least in my experience, becomes more true the more junior you get. Mm. Just really love the game. And that's mm-hmm. what they want to think about and talk about and engage with every day in a way that's like really pure and lovely. And I think if it if that sentiment were at the center of kind of how the industry operates, we'd probably see a really different version of the game than we do now because I think that their investment is really profound. So mm-hmm. again, like they care about the community in which they operate and like they make lifelong friends and they, yep. you know, also have people they don't like because it is a workplace. <laughs> so like that happens for folks, but it's really great. And I think over the last year, as we've seen different organizations weather the pandemic in different ways, we saw orgs that really took care of those baseball people and orgs that did a less good job of that. And a lot of those folks still stuck around in part because like this is what they do and how they make a living, but also because they really care about it as an endeavor. And even though they maybe did not experience good treatment at the hands of higher ups, they you know, they're kind of lifers. So Mm -hmm. I think it 
has, I've said this before, like it has been very clarifying to me about needing to differentiate really clearly between where mandates to sort of step back from competition or whatever we're calling it are coming from and where budgetary mandates come from because to say that it's like a front office thing is is insufficiently precise mm-hmm. so yeah that's yeah. a kind of long-winded answer to that question but <laughs> yeah like some of the things that garrett mentions here some of the negative aspects of baseball that we sometimes talk about and critique on the podcast they don't actually make me like baseball less i don't think at least they don't make me like the sport less i guess you know they might make me like mlb as a a business as a company a little less but even there i'm sort of aware that a lot of these are long-standing problems that maybe are coming to greater attention now but are not new problems and in many cases were even worse <laughs> before. Uh, so some of this is is new-ish, or, or at least there's a new wrinkle to it, like some of this anti-competitive behavior. But again, like look back at baseball history, and right. owners have always operated in a lot of those ways. And there have always been teams that weren't trying. And you know maybe it's more glaring now that baseball is a big business and brings in some number of billions of dollars per year. But just saying like, you know, pick your your golden age of baseball, quote unquote, and go back and look at what was actually happening there. And I don't think it would actually be better. And a lot of the things we talk about with like, you know, player behavior or front office behavior, not to excuse those things in any way but like again i think they were probably always part of baseball and were just sort of swept under the rug or or no one was really calling attention to them and so in a way you know and this is something that i think we deal with uh, in a lot of aspects of life with social media and everything kind of bringing these things to our attention constantly we're like more aware of the ills of society or tragedies than we once would have been doesn't mean that they didn't exist before and in many cases were more common and more deeply ingrained. And so I try to look at the fact that we focus on these things more now as a a sign of progress and hopefully change. And so I guess, you know, it it doesn't turn me off of baseball so much because I just feel like, well, it's not as if it's necessarily getting worse in these respects. Hopefully it's getting better. And also baseball is not unique in a lot of these things. A lot of these behaviors that we talk about, you know, look at any industry, look at any area of life. These are problems there too. We focus on them because this is a baseball podcast and we cover baseball. So that's the beat here, but doesn't mean it's unique to baseball. So You know, I try to put those things in perspective, I guess, and be able to be clear-eyed about those flaws without blowing them up into a proportion that would make me, you know, not want to watch the sport or pay attention to the sport anymore. But that said, I think there are a lot of really good ways to consume baseball without it just being about MLB as a business or even like the standings and, you know, who wins and loses every game. And I don't know whether being on this side of things has changed that for me. I think I've kind of always appreciated that about baseball, just like the cultural aspects of it and the way it brings people together and not just necessarily at the major league level, but all the way down to Little League and internationally. And, you know, it's a way that people relate to each other and talk to each other and sort of experience the the fabric of human existence just sort of through baseball and the history of it and the stories and the personalities all of that is as compelling to me as like the results on the field I think so I don't know whether being on this side of things has changed that for me or whether that was kind of 
always the way I look at it. But I do think that, you know, if you cover baseball, then you're hyper aware of these issues that, you know, if you're following it in a casual way or you're only paying attention to one team, maybe you're just not even aware of this stuff. You know, you're just watching the game and and that's kind of how you interact with baseball and there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that, you know, if your job is to cover these things, then in a way it's like you're exposed to all the bad stuff and maybe that might make you, you know, sort of cynical about it more so, you know, maybe you appreciate the the good parts of it too. But I think just being bombarded with the bad news, you know, more than someone who is not quite as plugged in would be, might make you more likely to sour on it, I guess, which, you know, I, I hope to avoid kind of, you know, losing my love for it, even if it's not necessarily, you know, Rob Manfred, it's just baseball itself. It's the the sport and the way people interact with it. And I think that it's not, like I said, it ebbs and flows, right? Your sort of enthusiasm for it, maybe less so because you're just, you're going to engage with it every day because that's your job, but your your sort of instinct to watch it when you don't have to for work might ebb and flow mm-hmm. a little bit depending on the relationship you're keeping with the sport and the way that you know the those sort of social issues within it are sort of hitting you on any given day like i wasn't you know like the the day that the jared porter news broke i wasn't like a super big fan of baseball but i think that you're right that there's there's a distinction that needs to be made between baseball as a game like small b baseball and then mlb and despite mlb's best efforts those are not completely synonymous with one another yet (laughs) (laughs) and i think that you know like any job where you kind of get to make a, a job out of a favorite hobby it changes your relationship with it and you mm-hmm. do lose some of the the kind of appreciation you have for the game that you have when you're a fan. At least it starts to morph a little bit into something else because suddenly you're like layering your own professional ambitions into it and professional mm-hmm. frustrations and you're you're dealing with like industry politics and all of that stuff. And I think that it's really different when you're in baseball media versus someone who works for a team. So like that's a distinction that needs to get made but yeah like i don't know i was thinking the other day i was like i think we're probably i don't know what they're gonna look like because i think there are plenty of teams that are pretty happy with the zoom life that beat reporters are living but i imagine we'll have winter meetings this year Mm -hmm. like in person Mm -hmm. i think we're supposed to be in nashville i think they're in nashville this year and i can't i can't wait i cannot wait i think the people are going to behave very badly (laughs) and i hope that everyone remembers that like it's okay to just not be hung over (laughs) like we can just decide we're not gonna do that don't do it Mm -hmm. you're gonna feel like garbage you know it make different choices but it's just gonna be really nice to like see a bunch of people who i haven't been able to see for by that point you know, two years almost um, because of the pandemic. And so it does afford you community and relationships that can be, you know, life-altering potentially. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Baseball is pretty cool. Sometimes it bugs (laughs) us, but I think we're both pretty big fans. Like I, uh, I'm very glad to get to do it for my job because it's my favorite Mm -hmm. thing. So it's pretty neat that it gets to occupy working time and help me pay rent. 
yeah, I'm sure you get jaded if you're a beat writer and you're on the road constantly and, you know, like you you probably want the games to get over with sooner. Like I, I think anyone would, even if it's hard to understand that as a fan, like if it's your job and you're on deadline and it affects how much sleep you have and what else you get to do, like it's just hard not to think of it that way, I think. But Maybe in exchange for that, you also get the relationships with other writers and people in the game and, you know, they become friends and and your social network. So I think there are pluses and minuses. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last question. This is a stat blast. This question comes from Evan, who says, I was looking through Baseball References trade partner history today and came across a deal that caught my eye, a 1991 trade between the Orioles and Astros that was extremely one-sided. The Astros traded away an aging Glenn Davis in exchange for three prospects, Kurt Schilling, Steve Finley, and Pete Harnish. The trade breaks down as follows. Kurt Schilling, 79.8 career Fangraphs war, 79.5 post-trade. Steve Finley, 40.4 career Fangraphs war, 40.2 post-trade. Pete Harnish, 20.6 career war, 17.3 post-trade. And Glenn Davis, 18.3 career Fangraphs war, only 0.4 post-trade, which brings a total of 136.6 Fangraphs war gained by Houston. When looking at various articles posted by ESPN, Bleacher Report, and even the Houston Chronicle about the most lopsided trades, none of them mention this deal. I reckon it's mostly because the Astros did not get as much out of these players as they could have. Steve Finley played only four of his remaining 17 seasons in Houston, and Schilling only had 56 average relief appearances in an Astros uniform before he was traded to the Phillies for Jason Grimsley. If you only look at games played in an Astros uniform, Houston only gained about 25 war, which is still a good trade, but Baltimore lost nearly 140 war. Obviously, this isn't a perfect way to evaluate trade lopsidedness since it fails to account for service time, contract, etc. So I was wondering how you would evaluate it. What do you think is the most lopsided trade of all time? Where do you think the Tatis Shields trade will end up on this list? And perhaps most importantly, if it's possible for me to make a complete list with queries, or would it be easier to continue my strategy of scrolling through baseball reference? Because Evan was looking for other trades that might stack up to this trade. So... I went straight to the source to Dan Hirsch, friend of the show, Patreon supporter who works for Baseball Reference, and he was able to send me a list and write a query on the Baseball Reference database to send me the examples of the most lopsided trades just in terms of war produced by the players on either end of the trade post-trade. So, yeah, as Evan's saying, like, yeah, you you'd want to take into account salary and service time and all of that, but that gets complicated looking back at the entirety of baseball history. And I think this is an interesting way to look at it, too, just who got the most war after yeah. the deal. So technically, and, and Dan mentioned that this includes trades, only not purchases. There's a transaction type called purchase, which is just basically, you know, spending money to get a player and the Babe Ruth trade, for instance, was a purchase. So that doesn't show up here. But 
technically the most lopsided trade is an 1899 deal between the Pirates and the Louisville Colonels. This is the Hannes Wagner trade. Oh, and sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, this one, <laughs> the war received 334 war received oh by God. the Pirates, you know, 43 war gained uh, by the Colonels. Now, this one, this, you know, this is kind of an exception because right. what actually happened here is that there was contraction happening in the National League at that time. It was going down from 12 teams to eight teams. And Barney Dreyfus was like the president of the Colonels, and he also owned the Pirates or half owned the Pirates. And so the Colonels were one of the teams getting eliminated. So basically, he just took the good players from the Colonels and transferred them to his other team, the Pirates. So uh, speaking of, you know, anti-competitive behavior in past eras of baseball, you're not allowed to own multiple teams anymore, which is, you know, probably an improvement. But Anyway, this is, you know, technically a trade where Hannes Wagner and Rube Waddell and Fred Clark and Tommy Leach and Deacon Phillip and Claude Ritchie and other players uh, went to the Pirates in exchange for Jack Chesbro and, and a bunch of not as good players. Uh, but, you know, that's a net gain of 291.9 war, but that doesn't really count. If you want a trade that was really legitimately a trade... Evan is right. It is this 1991 trade between the Astros and the Orioles. Yeah, 138.6 war lopsidedness. And again, it's Kurt Schilling, Steve Finley, and Pete Harnish for Glenn Davis. And Glenn Davis was uh, actually a a good player up to that point in his career, but not really for long (laughs) thereafter. And those other players really panned out and, you know, turned into near Hall of Fame caliber players or Hall of Fame caliber, but not yet Hall of Fame players or very good players in in Harnish's case. So that is the most lopsided. And I think my my favorite aspect of that deal, and I guess we just passed the 30th anniversary of that trade on January 10th. But I think the interesting thing is you might think, wow, like the Astros really cleaned the Orioles' clocks there. Like they really knew something that the Orioles didn't. And yet, The Astros didn't get much from those guys, and they traded all three of those players away in deals that did not work out well for the Astros. So it's like no one knows anything. You know, the the Astros, they got Steve Finley, but then in 1994, they traded Finley with a player to be named later and Ken Caminiti and Andahar Cedeno and Roberto Pettigini and Brian Williams to the Padres for Derek Bell, Doug Brokill. Ricky Gutierrez, Pedro Martinez, not that Pedro Martinez, Phil Plantier, Craig Shipley, etc. So that was a, a very lopsided trade where, you know, Finley was sort of a, a late bloomer and Caminiti, of course. So that was a bad trade for the Astros. And then they traded Harnish to the Mets for players to be named later. And it was just, you know, like two guys, Andy Beckerman and Juan Castillo, who never pitched for the Astros in the majors. And then the Astros traded as Evan mentioned, uh, Schilling to the Phillies for Jason Grimsley in 1992. So like they made this incredible trade, but they didn't even really know what they had. And they traded those players themselves in, in similarly lopsided deals. And the interesting thing is that the Phillies Astros trade for Schilling 
that's actually 16th on the list of uh, most lopsided trades. 74.5 were just shilling for Grimsley. So yeah, the Astros made one of the best trades of all time. And then they made a series of very bad trades, including another of the worst trades of all time. So I kind of like that just for the complete incompetence on display in all sides. (laughs) You know, it's hard to predict baseball player paths. I wonder where Ted Tees will rank. It's, yeah. I mean, it already doesn't look very good. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very early to call the ball on that, but it already does not look very good. It's just such an intimate, I think maybe I've said this before, it's just such an intimate thing to know about someone. It's like, you think about these GMs and what they must think about if they can't sleep and it's 3 a.m. and they're like, I'm going to, you know, yep. like I relive stuff from middle school. And it's mm-hmm. like, I bet Rick relives this. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, what if, like, what mm-hmm. if AJ hadn't been on those backfields? Yeah. Then what? We'll see. If Tatis turns out to be a, a Hall of Fame player, then this will climb the list. But Man. I will read you some of the other top lopsided trades here and I'll put the full list online because this is a really fun spreadsheet to peruse. But the next most lopsided, we've got December 5th, 1988. The Rafael Palmero trade between the Cubs and the Rangers. So this was a, a 108.9 war differential. It was Rafael Palmero and Jamie Moyer and mm. Drew Hall for Mitch Williams and Steve Wilson and Paul Kilgus and Kurt Wilkerson. So that was uh, not such a good one. Not so good. Next on the list. This is uh, kind of an all-timer. The Giants and the Reds traded Christy Mathewson and Emmis Rusi. So all-time great in Christy yeah. Mathewson and Emmis Rusi, I think, pitched like three more games or, or three more days or something before it was the end of his career. So that's a uh, 107.2 war. That's uh, December 15th, 1900. Next one, July 29th, 1988. Baltimore and Boston. Oh, boy. This is uh, another Kurt Schilling trade, actually. Kurt Schilling is in three of the most lopsided trades of all time. So this one actually predated the Astros-Orioles one. This was the Orioles getting Kurt Schilling and Brady Anderson for Mike Boddicker. And that's a, a difference of 100.3 war. So that just wow. that adds to my appreciation of this sequence. So, man, Kurt Schilling, notable for many reasons. You know, yeah. some of them not so great. But this is a, a fun fact, I think. So he's, uh, he's a centerpiece of three of the top 16 most lopsided trades of all time. So I don't know whether that is a reflection of his personality in any way or whether it was just people not recognizing how good Kurt Schilling was going to be. But the Orioles uh, got a potential steal and then they gave away a potential steal and then the Astros also did. So people were just playing hot potato with Kurt Schilling and no one knew how good he was going to be. Next one is April 21st, 1966. Fergie Jenkins and Adolfo Phillips and John Hernstein for Larry Jackson and Bob Buell. That's a trade between the Cubs and the Phillies. Cubs get Fergie Jenkins. Pretty good deal there. Yep. 1982, December 9th, trade between the Blue Jays and the Yankees, the Fred McGriff trade. The Yankees traded Fred McGriff, Mike Morgan, and Dave Collins to the Blue Jays for Tom Dodd and Dale Murray. Your classic uh, George Steinbrenner pulling the plug too early on a young, promising player trade. Yeah. 
Then you've got the notorious Nolan Ryan trade. Yeah. The Angels and the Mets, December 10th, 1971. Nolan Ryan, Leroy Stanton, Frank Estrada, and Don Rose for Jim Fregosi. Of course, that's a, a difference of 82.6 war. That was 85 in that McGriff trade, if I didn't mention that. And then you also have 1971 November trade between the Reds and the Astros. The Reds picked up Joe Morgan. That worked out pretty well for them. Yeah. Joe Morgan had already been a very good player for the Astros, but became an even better player for the Reds. So it was Joe Morgan, Cesar, Geronimo, Dennis Menke, Jack Billingham, Ed Armbrister for Lee May, Tommy Helms, and Jimmy Stewart. That is uh, the top 10. Then you know, you've also got the Johnny Damon trade for Ben Grieve and Angel Barroa. Mark Ellis in that deal too. So the A's got Johnny Damon and Mark Ellis and Corey Lytle. That worked out well. The Sammy Sosa trade between the White Sox and the Rangers in 1989. Sammy Sosa, Wilson Alvarez, Scott Fletcher for Harold Baines, Fred Manrique, and another notorious one, Jeff Bagwell. Yeah. Going from the Red Sox to the Astros in 1990. So again, there you have the Astros. You know, they were making some great trades and some terrible trades at that time. But Jeff Bagwell for Larry Anderson, that is a, a notorious one. So I will put the full list online. And if you're thinking of a, a famous lopsided trade, it is probably on here somewhere close to the top of the list. The Pedro Martinez deal, Ryan Sandberg, Willie Randolph, Pee Wee Reese, George Davis, Gaylord Perry, David Cohn, Early Wynn, Wally Shang, John Smoltz, Norm Cash, et cetera, et cetera. Another Sammy Sosa trade. So fun list. Thank you to Evan for the question and to Dan Hirsch for the data. Just hug your prospects. Never mm-hmm. let them go. Yeah. <laughs> Never change. Yeah. <laughs> Got the Derek Lowe and, and Jason Veritek for Heathcliff Slocum <laughs> up here oh, in 1997. Man. Not one that Mariners fans are, are fond of. No, not especially. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That will do it. Well, after we recorded this episode, a couple of pieces came out by Fabian Ardaya and Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic that shed a little light on Albert Pujols' exit from the Angels. And based on those reports, which cited and quoted Angel sources, but not Pujols, it sounds as if some of the suppositions in our discussion were correct. The Angels talked to Pujols about playing less, being benched, winding down his career in some mutual way. Pujols wasn't having it, wanted to continue to play, didn't really want a bench role of any kind, at least according to the Angels, and so that sort of necessitated the awkward breakup. So based on those portrayals, at least, I can't really fault the Angels for how they handled this, and Pujols is within his rights to decide not to go gently into retirement, though I wonder what this will mean for the 10-year personal services contract with the Angels that was supposed to kick in after the 10-year playing contract. I don't know if this not entirely amicable ending to his career as an Angels player will make it more likely for him to continue to serve some role with the team, or whether they can get together again if Pujols finds that the Angels weren't alone and he wasn't wanted elsewhere. I will link to both of those pieces on the show page if you're interested in checking them out. And in the actual game on Thursday, Shohei Otani DH'd and hit a home run, Jared Walsh started at first and started a nice 3-6 double play, and the Angels lost anyway. What else is new? Okay, as always, thanks for listening today and this week. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Dylan Buell, Stephen, Justin Coates, Ivan Rachmanin, 
and Nick E.D. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Nick coming. Please replenish our mailbag at podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Never release.